thank you again for uh, inviting me here for your session and pastors. It's a privilege uh, to be ministering here for three Lord's Days in the Bloomington Reformed Presbyterian Church, a church I've attended on other occasions and had uh, some close friends in the church that are still here and also some of your pastors were good friends of mine as well. Uh, so it's a, a joy to be back and to just uh, see the, the work that God's doing among you and I also hope that <clears throat> hope that while I'm here I'll get to meet a lot of new people and um, though I don't know you very well I do want you to know that uh, working with your elders I'm here to serve you in any way I can and so if there's something I can help with I really want to do that uh, let's turn now in the Bible to Psalm 65 and let's read it Psalm 65 Hear God's word. I'm, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The choir, to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due you to you, O God, in Zion. <clears throat> Excuse me. And to you shall vows, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and all and of the farthest seas the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Please keep your Bible open uh, to this passage, Psalm 65. And there is an outline provided where you can keep, take some notes if you like this morning. During my time here, uh, I intend to preach on six times. And my subjects, at least what I intend, and that could change, uh, uh, all begin with the word O-U-R, R. And so the first uh, sermon today is Our God. And then this afternoon, uh, if you're joining us for the service, then at 1.30, we'll be thinking about our Savior as he's prophet, priest, and king in the scriptures, our Savior. The next week, our Great Commission. And in the evening, our hearts, which are the heart of the matter. 
And then in uh, two weeks, the following week, uh, our church. What is the church to be? And finally, our Lord. Our Lord will not forsake us. So this morning, uh, we begin with Psalm 65. And where does Christian theology begin? Where does Christian doctrine begin? What's the heart of our beliefs? Is it not with the doctrine of God? Is it not God? Who is God? That's where theology starts. That's where religion begins. Where would you start in trying to win a person to the Christian faith or to call back one of the lost sheep of Israel with showing how wonderful God is? That's a good place to begin. And Psalm 65 does that. It speaks all about God and about his goodness. It's a song of praise. Uh, verse 1 states, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. It's due to you. It awaits you, as another version says. Praise waits for you in Zion. The, word, the use of the word Zion, the mountain on which the temple sat, indicates that praise is most appropriate uh, when it comes from the assembled church of God in the gathering of the saints where we are today. It's not that we can't or should not praise God other places, but just as the temple was the place where Israel assembled as the people of God, where they were called to meet and to worship, uh, so they, and where they looked with longing when they were in exile, they longed for that temple situation. So a Christian today wants to be in the house of God, in the Lord's house, worshiping with God's people together on the Lord's day, when and whenever and wherever the body of Christ is assembled. Worship in the church by God's people. And yet this psalm goes way beyond those who are presently believers to speak a call to the whole earth to rejoice in God. And that's very significant in this psalm that God's calling the nations, the world, to himself. Psalms 65 through 68, if you just glance at them there in your Bible, these psalms perhaps are put together because of that theme that they all share in one way or another, that theme of all nations coming to praise God. Just look at a couple verses in, in Psalm 65 through 68 with me for a moment as we, as we introduce this subject. Uh, in the psalm that we're looking at, the second part of verse 5 says that God is the hope of all the ends of the earth. It goes to the farthest seas. In verse 8 of Psalm 65 says, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. This is a, a big psalm. It's talking about the world. Look at Psalm 66 then, verse 1. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing to the glory of his name. These psalms have to do with calling all the earth to praise God. Again, in Psalm 66, verse 4, all earth worship you, worships you and sings praises to you. Psalm 66, verse 8, Blessed, bless our God, O peoples, peoples of the nations. And then if you look at uh, Psalm 67, we often speak about this as the missionary psalm and look at verses um, 2 through 5 of Psalm 67 and notice the theme there as well. 
that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. In verse 7, God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So you see how this theme is carried on in these psalms in this section. And Psalm 65 is part of that. Real quickly at Psalm 68 also, uh, verse 18 of Psalm 68 says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Uh, The New Testament picks up that passage in Ephesians 4 and speaks about Christ giving gifts to his church, to people coming from all nations into the church, into God's family, and God bringing in gifted people to the church among whom you are, all nations. And then verses 31 and 32 of Psalm 68 say, Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. So as we look at Psalm 65, realizing that it's a psalm that calls us as God's people to praise and also calls the nations to praise God, I trust that this morning by God's spirit, you and I will be uh, motivated in a greater way to give praise to the Lord, to our God who is good, and that we will also be motivated to be used by God to bring others in to praise his name and glorify his name. That's what the psalm should lead us to. Uh, If you have the English Standard Version in front of you, there's a footnote that says about verse 1 when it says, Praise is due to you, O God. It says, Praise waits for you in silence. And so there's something in the text uh, that says the word has the idea of silence in it and some of the older versions uh, the king james version i think speaks that way and one commentary commentary said praise is do do you in that uh, version that the esv uses it's following the septuagint version the, the greek version of the old testament but the commentator goes on and says but it's best to leave it as the king james version says it Praise waits for thee in Zion with the idea of being awaiting God in silent reverence. So that's the idea in the text here in the Hebrew is waiting in silence. The the idea of praise is due to you is very much there. The idea of waiting and the idea of silence before God. So let's, as a congregation, as we come in, in a sense, we, we, we are, maybe we're noisy when we first come in, but then we get silent as the pastor elder gets up there and uh, we get ready for the call to worship. But there is a sense in which we're waiting for God. We're wanting God to come and be with us. And so it's good even as we begin to look at this passage to sit silently and wait for God and then begin to praise him and glorify his name. This psalm divides itself very neatly into three sections. And so we're going to look first at our God is a merciful God. 
then our God is a mighty God. And thirdly, our God is a magnanimous God. And if you can't spell that, I couldn't either before I tried several times preparing for the sermon. So we'll get to that in the third time. Maybe I'll spell it out for those of you who are not good spellers, like I'm not a good speller. Let's think about verses one through four, first of all. A merciful God. Let's read it again. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Often when we think about uh, God's great doings, we begin with creation, and then we talk about providence, and then we talk about redemption. And there's a logic to that. God created, God lives in our lives, he's providentially worked in the world, and he has brought redemption through Jesus Christ. But notice that this psalm puts redemption at the beginning. It starts with redemption, and then I suggest moves more to creation and, and then to providence. And while the creation, providence, salvation sequence does have a logic to it, the order of this psalm reminds us that only the one who's born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, repents of sin and is reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, only then can a person truly recognize and appreciate God's creative and providential actions both in one's own life and in the world around us. Well, what truths do we see here in these first four verses about salvation? Maybe we should start at verse four and work backwards. First of all, in verse four, we reminded that God is holy and to enter his temple, we must be invited. And to be invited into God's temple is no small thing for God to call you to himself. Sacrifice and offering were needed in the old covenant days, and a priest was required to enter into the Holy of Holies for the people. But as new covenant Christians, we rely on Christ, our priest, on Christ, our sacrifice, the one who went before us behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and who, through the sacrifice of his body, the curtain was torn apart and gave us access to the living God. And there, having been brought back into a relationship with our God and creator, we are truly satisfied with the goodness of his house. We enjoy the holiness. We enjoy being part of his family. And your elder pointed out very well that this chosen one is, first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who God chose to enter into his presence. And now, as, I, as we are united to Christ, he also chooses us and brings us in to God's presence. But what about our iniquities in verse 3? Yes, they continue to prevail against us, even as Christians, but they have been atoned for by the blood of Christ's cross. If we have no sin, says 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The big truth brings to light the smaller truths in our lives. 
Or to put it another way, the big lie leads to little lies. What do I mean by that? The lie that I don't need salvation, that I'm okay the way I am, leads to all other kinds of little lies in my life. The recognition that you're a sinner and you need Christ, the truth of God's word leads to to other truths in a practical way. For example, uh, if I don't believe that I'm a sinner, then whenever I sin and do wrong things, as I said to the children, I'm going to make up a lie. I'm going to say, well, I didn't do that, or I make excuses. And I see that in many times when I'm involved with people in different situations. I see somebody who hasn't accepted the big truth that he's a sinner and he needs Jesus Christ uh, making up all kinds of little lies and excuses for the sins he commits. But you and I, as Christians, as believers, if you've come to confess your sins, if you put your trust in Christ, then you don't have to hide your sins. You can confess your sins to God and as necessary to one another. Continuing to go backward through verses 4 through 1, we come to verse 2. Through the Lord Jesus, we have access to God in prayer. Jesus, after making that sacrifice for us, has ascended to heaven, and there he intercedes for us. If we ask anything in Christ's name, and according to God's will, it will be granted to us. God hears our prayers, and he hears the prayers of all the earth. He hears the cry of all who call upon him for salvation. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He said, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. As people arrive spiritually at the end of their ropes, as they hit bottom, having tried all other answers, if they humbly call out to God for mercy, he will hear their prayer and save them. What about you? Have you hit bottom? Have you found... Uh, finally come to that point where you know you need God, don't hesitate to call out and ask him for mercy, to repent and beg Christ to save you, and he will hear you. So come into his presence, come into God's presence through faith in his son. Accept the mercy granted through the one who came to earth to live and die for others. Admit your own sinfulness and unworthiness to enter God's presence, and lo and behold, the door who is Christ swings open to you, and you enter his temple. And when you enter his temple, then verse 1, fulfill your vows if you come. As Ecclesiastes says, we should speak less and listen more when we draw near to God. We should be careful what we promise, whether publicly or privately. Yet if we come before him in faith and worship, we also must go forth and serve him. So we do make vows. We do say, Lord, I want to serve you this week. Lord, I will serve you this week. He's our master. He gives us work to do. Yes, we are still weak and sinful. However, we should also remember that what he commands, he gives us grace to accomplish. The spirit he has given you is not one of fear, but of power and of love and of wisdom. And he who began a good work in you will continue to it to the day of Christ Jesus coming. He will not let you slip out of his hand once you are truly saved. You will bear fruit, and it will last to eternity. So come into his courts and praise God. He's a merciful God. Second, 
Our God is a mighty God. Verses 5 through 8. It says there, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. The King James says, By terrible things in righteousness you will answer us. What are those those, uh, awesome deeds, even those terrible deeds, as you look through verses 5 and 8? Look down through those those verses, verses 5 through 8. What what are the deeds he's talking about? These answers, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. Well, if you look at those verses, it includes, uh, first of all, the great creative acts of God in the beginning of time, the creation of the universe, setting the earth on its foundations. These are awesome things that God has done, are they not? We enjoy and we love his creation and we learn from it and we, we study it. We're thankful for his mighty acts. These awesome deeds also include his ongoing actions in the natural world. The stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, the mountains, the oceans, the skies, the clouds, the dawn and the dusk. Not every one of these things are uh, mentioned or at least developed, but these ideas are there. These, These creative actions of God and these ongoing actions of God in the natural world. And also, Included in these are his works, his righteous judgments, which come upon the earth and people living in it. So this passage is talking about all those things. And as we think about particularly the judgments of God, we're talking about things like famines and plagues and wars. Judgments which came on the ancient world that we read about in the scriptures and which also came upon the Israelites in their times of disobedience. But also those same things which have continued throughout world history, and which some are even surprised today in our own time have come upon us. I've heard people say, can you believe what's happening in Ukraine in the 21st century? Yes, I can believe what's happening. The world is no different, and God has no different look at sin than he did long ago. Haven't we advanced such disasters as famine and plagues and war with our science and with our diplomacy and with our modern conveniences? No, as we've seen clearly in the last three years, storms rage, pandemics kill, and wars erupt, devastating modern cities and killing thousands of people. This is, what part, this is part of what verses 5 through 8 are talking about when they say awesome, terrible things. These events are witnesses to the nations as well as to God's people, that he still is powerful, that he calls the world to righteous obedience, and that if you and I think these things are bad, remember that the final day of the Lord is yet to come, when all wickedness will be dealt with in judgment. Verse 5 declares that the God of our salvation is the only hope of all the ends of the earth. In the midst of wars, plagues, storms, famines, I have hardly ever heard a national leader or a local leader, at least where I am, say, we must repent. We must cry out to God for mercy 
and deliverance. And I know we can stand back and be Christians who say that in our churches and so forth, but do we say that in our hearts and in a proper way when we're talking to people, not in judgment of them, but in, in admitting that God is righteous, acknowledging that we are sinners, recognizing that God uses these things to judge the world and to call people to repentance. We must cry out to God for mercy and deliverance. Christian and non-Christian alike, he is the hope of the ends of the earth. The one who long, established, long ago established the mountains by his strength is clothed with might, verse 6. He stills the roaring seas and the tumults of the people, verse 7. As Psalm 46 says, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Let's pray to God, as we did today, that God would stop the wars, that God would bring peace, that God would have mercy on us and on our world. Verse 8 ends this section about God's might by pointing to the awesome daily signs which extend around the world. And uh, so often I, I love the rising of the sun and I love the going down of the sun. And don't you, isn't it beautiful? And I believe that's what's being spoken of there in verse eight. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth in an, are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. God is awesome, God is great, God is terrible, but he's a good God in all his might. What a wonderful creation he's given us and he reminds us every morning as the sun rises and as the moon comes up at night and the sun goes down, he reminds us of his glory and his mighty power. And these cause us to shout for joy even in the midst of our troubles, as verse eight says. These cause us to shout for joy each day, even in all these things. God is merciful. Our God is a mighty God. And thirdly, our God is a magnanimous God. Okay, I'll spell it for you. M-A-G-N-A-N. Don't forget there's two N's in there. I-M-O-U-S. A magnanimous God. What does magnanimous mean? Well, magnanimous also means mercy, merciful. Um, but I'm using it here not so much uh, in God's mercy in forgiving us to describe this section, but I'm using it to speak of his generous, uh, his generous spirit, magnanimous. Magni means great, and animus refers to one's mind or one's soul. God is noble-minded. God is high-souled. God is generous. Despite our, all our sins, he still causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He is not petty or mean. He is generous to all. Our God is magnanimous. And that's what verses 9 and 13 are about. That's why I want to use that word to describe them, not to just bring up an unusual word, but that's what these verses are about. God's generosity to all creatures, his providence, his kind care of the earth and the creatures which live in it. The writer turns from the great monumental acts of God, which are so awesome and frightening in, verses, in the verses uh, five through eight, to his daily uh, provisions of all we need. 
God visits the earth with water and rain. Do you see how it's so full of water, uh, these verses? As I as I mentioned, I came across uh, Missouri and Illinois, and, uh, or not or Illinois and Indiana, mostly in the rain yesterday, and I saw the flooded fields. I don't know much about farming. I'm, maybe there's too much water out there right now, but we certainly saw the furrows filled with water. And, um, and as I come to this part of the country, coming from a drier area out in, in Wyoming, it's re- we're, we're about, I'd say, uh, um, at least six weeks, maybe two months behind you generally in when our flowers and leaves come out. It just seems so lush to come into this part of the country. It's just beautiful. God is just, uh, Indiana is just a, is, is almost being described here, you might say. I don't see the hills very much, but, but uh, the, the farmland and so forth. And so we look at uh, this, this, these verses, these last verses, verses 8 uh, through 11, and we see the abundance, the pastors uh, producing grass for the cattle, the cattle on the hills, the crops down in the valleys. Um, if your version in verse 11 may say, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. Um, what does that mean? One commentator says it's like they're taking the wagons back to the, places they're storing uh, the, the grain and so forth, and they're just, uh, things are falling off the wagon into the wagon tracks because there's so much abundance. I, I don't know for sure if that's the idea there. I picture the tracks like we actually see in our fields filling up with all the crops and the things falling, uh, the things in the fields themselves. I'm not sure. But the valleys are decked with grain. The flocks fill up the meadows. Seed time and harvest, as the scriptures say, will remain as long as the earth does until the day of Christ's coming. And so there at the end of verse, th- verse 13, all the hills and the valleys and the plants and the trees and the animals and mankind themselves shout and sing together for joy. Notice the, the, that last line of the psalm, verse 13. They shout and sing together for joy. Notice how it repeats what was at the end of the second section in verse 8. The evening shouts for joy. And certainly, though it doesn't say it quite that way in the section on salvation, we too shout for joy because of Christ's salvation. We enter his courts bringing praise. So the ends of the earth and those enjoying the abundance of God's provision also give praise to to him for his might and his magnanimous spirit. Our God is a merciful God. Our God is a mighty God. Our God is a magnanimous God. That's what the psalm is telling us. So what do you say to your unbelieving friend if you have the chance to discuss the truth of Christianity with him or her? What do you say to your unbelieving son or daughter who has turned away from the Lord? Or what do you say to your half-believing neighbor as you consider the events of our world today? What do you say? I remember a story uh, that I was told once about a man who went to his first day of work in Australia and uh, as apparently was uh, common in those days, uh, they said to him, what do you know, Joe? That was a greeting, I guess, in in, uh, Australia to a new person. What do you know, Joe? And this man replied, his answer was, God is good. And that might sound like a conversation stopper, perhaps. But I've often used it as an illustration of how we might open up our faith. 
uh, to those around us. Let them know where we stand right from the beginning when we take a job. That may stop the conversation right then, but it, the conversation may arise again. You know, when, when I uh, did some different kinds of work or actually refereed basketball or worked in rental management, um, often in a conversation I'd start to talk to somebody and, and one of the first things you ask is, what do you do? And so uh, I used to think there were some detriments to being a minister because once they found out you're a minister, they ran away from you or they stayed, didn't want to talk, I'll be open with you. But actually it's been a great benefit in witnessing because early on in the conversation I could say I'm a minister and so it's natural to ask what church and of course they always ask how many of your people are in your church too they always ask that but it leads to further conversation so you who maybe aren't ministers you don't have you know I work as an engineer I do this or that but uh, what about in early on in a conversation saying God is good and that opens up the conversation but today I'm not using it so much uh, as, as saying uh, that that's necessarily the best way to start witnessing but I'm saying that it's a way to talk to people who are questioning, to the agnostic, to the unbelieving, to the one who feels burned in life and somehow has turned out against God, is to say, first of all, God is good. God is almighty, but God is good. God is just. God is good. I don't understand it all, but God is good. He does not want anyone to perish, the Bible says, but all to come to their senses, to repent and believe, 2 Peter 3, 9. As Abraham said to the Lord as he pleaded with the Lord for his nephew Lot, standing on a ridge, looking over the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah far below, Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, the judge of all the earth will do right. God is good. The God you and I know, the God of the Bible, is a merciful God. He is a mighty God, and he is a magnanimous God. Won't you praise him? Won't you trust him? Won't you take him at his word? You will not be sorry. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with your goodness, the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Let's join in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, there are many people who don't believe that you're good. There may be people in our congregation today who don't believe you're good or have questioned that or wonder about that because of things that have happened to them in life or things that are going on right now. But you are good. You are great. You are mighty. You are awesome. God, open our eyes to that. And as we struggle in life, we pray, and as our friends and our loved ones struggle in life, we pray that they might know that this is true, that you are good, that they might start there in their theology. They might start there as you call them back to yourself. We thank you for the man you chose, the Lord Jesus Christ, your son, to enter your temple for us, to offer his life for us, to have us be forgiven of our sins and brought into relationship with you again, and to be able to enter your holy temple, 
to live in your creation, to enjoy your wonderful providences, and Lord, to call others to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. May you bless this congregation as it seeks to worship and praise you and to tell others about Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So let's sing the last part of Psalm 65, 65B. There's four sections of it, I think, in the psalm book, but A and B cover the whole psalm. So we're going to sing 65B in the hope that we'll be able to reflect as we sing on these, uh, these words that we've been meditating on. After the singing, uh, we'll have the benediction and then also the doxology, which is 134b. And then after that, uh, we'll be rising for these things. And after that, uh, if you'll be seated for uh, prayer for the meal and maybe some announcements. But let's now stand and sing Psalm 65b.